Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back to beautiful, forested Twin Peaks. Smell those Douglas furs. I am one of your co-ghosts. I am Log Log Lady Ash today. I'm going to be Log Lady Ash, joined as always by... A special investigative podcaster. Uh, It's it's John. How are we all doing? How are we all doing? We are we are alive, alive and well here continuing our Twin Peaks season one retrospective with episode one traces to nowhere. So do you want to I suppose the thing to do would be to kind of set up where do things stand at the beginning of this after the pilot? Where are we? Uh, so th- this this begins to introduce kind of our extended cast of characters here in Traces to Nowhere. Coop is now staying at the Great Northern Hotel. The investigation is underway. We're introduced to Audrey Horn and Benjamin Horn and their their wayward family. Uh, uh, Cooper, uh, Cooper and Sheriff Truman uh, continue their investigation. They look into James. They start looking into Laura's friends. Uh, and everything everything really starts to expand. We get Dr. Lawrence Jacoby. So this is really, this episode serves to really introduce the wider range of characters here in Twin Peaks while still forwarding the investigation and setting up a lot of the B and C plots. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, our first our first kind of episode on this was maybe a little bit longer than we want to, we w- want the rest of them to be. We want to keep them, we want them to be kind of short, digestible kind of sips from the coffee cup of discourse, if you will. <laughs> um, so... Where would you like to start with this week's episode? Well, I'm, I want to start where every Twin Peaks episode starts, and that's with the Log Lady's introduction. Absolutely. There, there, there is truly the art of praises right there. Just, just <laughs> chef's kiss, phenomenal. Uh, Log Lady, come on, HV. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so the the Log Lady at the beginning of Traces to Nowhere is kind of disc- discussing what it means to find meaning in in the events of our human lives. You know, what, what does it mean to detect that? What is the function of detection more broadly beyond just the scope of the detective? And, and I think that that is, is such a huge tease for Twin Peaks, right? Because th- this is a show that invites so much of that. It invites so much of this work of discovering meaning and looking for answers from everywhere from the basic plot of, of Cooper and Sheriff Truman investigating a murder mystery all the way over to these larger metaphysical questions surrounding the Black Lodge and its inhabitants and, and the greater like extraterrestrial, uh, extra-dimensional and metaphysical mysteries that go on here. Well, yeah, precisely. This is, the, this is the problem of the police procedural, right? The police procedural is a kind of disciplinary discourse, right? It's, it is, the entire purpose of it is to go even in the very midst of kind of chaos and disaster, the world is at core fundamentally explicable, right? You can track the causal chains of agential capacity back to find the quote unquote guilty person. And that can be, they can be safely excised from the social body and 
kind of the norm or order or justice can be uh, inscribed upon that. Um, and I think the the great advantage, the great kind of strength of Twin Peaks is it, is it goes actually no because human beings, human psychology, and human human um, humans on a kind of existential level are so much fundamentally much weirder and much more interesting than that oh oh absolutely and and like the fact that like um so if you if you've watched twin peaks on a streaming service probably you've missed these log lady introductions um to the best of my knowledge they're not included in a lot of the streaming versions of the show it just kind of jumps right into the title sequence um but if you if you have the dvd or you would have watched it on television each episode is introduced by the log lady kind of asking some pointed yet philosophically meandering questions and that really that changes how you encounter twin peaks as a text right it's no longer this thing that we watch it's now something we participate in the construction of we're invited to to have this q a session we're invited to be part of the mystery part of the discussion the 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 log lady is is kind of a mythical being in a way she she can directly ask us the the viewer of the program questions and exist in and participate with the narrative itself right like we we are in so many respects the log in her loving arms you know like be, being carried through the sequence of events in this and it adds this ludic element right it changes the relationship to the text you know oh god i just I could talk about the log lady forever. I could do a log lady series. <laughs> I mean, precisely. And in, in a way, I sort of like that in some people won't have that experience. Because talking about it, you immediately, the people who haven't seen those introductions will go, what are you, what are you all talking about? Right? It, it raises the question immediately. There's a, there, mm -hmm. is a, there is a specter haunting Twin Peaks. The specter of the log lady. Um, and this is like, like, like a lot of the times when like, you know, my favorite character is the log lady. She adds so much to this. And it's, it's because of these little extra elements. Because without these, like, the log lady is a very much, you know, tertiary, almost background character. But when you realize that, like, the log lady is the first person you see every episode, the log lady defines each episode and kind of guides you. Like, it, it fundamentally shifts how we look at Twin Peaks. I think I think in many ways it sort of just clarifies a lot. You know, if the show comes off as too weird, it's because you you haven't. We're conditioned by the generic structures of television to treat each text in a certain way. That's the whole point mm -hmm. of jet of genre conventions, in a sort of fundamental way, right? Is to condition the audience to responding or or interpreting a text within a given set of pre existing hermeneutical frameworks. And yes. the 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 problem of Twin Peaks, quote unquote, is that on a personal subjective level, the the content and form of the text create friction with those implied hermeneutic schemes that we are kind of preconditioned to to approach television with. And I think the advantage mm -hmm. of, uh, the advantage of the Log Lady is to kind of shatter them to go. Actually, no, you think you're watching something. You think you're watching a a predefined uh, easily comprehensible text, right? You're watching a soap, you're watching a, a police procedural, but actually you're being drawn into something which is both of those and at the same time, neither. It's not even a TV show. It's a game. 
mm-hmm. like the, the the function of the log lady it, it's it, you're absolutely right it is shattering genre formulations not even intra television as a televisual media with its own conventions and its own kind of technological relationships to culture but media in general right like like this this is this is changing what twin peaks even looks like log lady log lady <laughs> oh dear shall i lead us on to the next topic please do my friend please do excellent so one thing that i like to talk a lot about in the context of anything david lynch makes or is related to or has creative input behind is mundanity right i th- i think that for as much and we talked about this in the previous episode or touched on it rather but as much as David Lynch is a master of surrealism on a conceptual level, which I would agree with and not argue at all, I think that David Lynch is also just just a wizard of the mundane, right? And, and, and is able to control mundanity in such a way that almost it opens us up to the surreality in the mundane, which I think is really important, right? Yes, let's twin- talk about yeah. the gothic reenchantment of small town americana because that's that's precisely what i think you're driving at right which is this absolutely completely constructed idea that ordinary that the the ordinary is boring and this is not the case like every single moment of existence every single kind of like microsecond that our consciousness sparks into webs and rhizomes of innumerable complexity is compellingly weird and i think what's I, I completely agree with you. I think what's incredible about Lynch is that he takes that weirdness seriously. And in yeah. and in what is too often written off as the mundane in a pejorative sense, right? You go, oh, well, that's... Yes, yes, like, yes. People are very, very dismissive of the mundane. But actually, Lynch takes it phenomenally seriously and goes, like, in those moments, like, of domesticity, of, like, of, like going to school, of going to work, Every moment is this kind of cornucopia of potentials, right? What could happen to you? And this is a classic thing about the ethics of horror, right? Everyone has had everyone has had a kind of ordinary day that gets shattered in an instant by a phone call, right? Yeah. Like something happens, you see something, you hear something, someone that you love uh, or maybe even yourself, you fall ill, right? The world kind of snaps apart the very ordinary stuff of life is suddenly revealed to be very trivial. And in the mundanity, you kind of come back to it with this sense of actually, you know, life is far, far weirder than we give it credit for. Absolutely. And I think like, so, so this episode does this really brilliantly, right? Like we're, we're introducing serial killers, occult mysteries, death of loved ones, deaths in the family, these these metaphysical and ontological questions about what we are even doing as humans in this endeavor on this planet and at, at the same time coop is just ranting and raving about getting uh, albert getting lunch at the lamplighter inn sheriff and ed uh, are, are, yeah the sheriff and ed are talking about ed having an affair okay like there's a lot of like drama in there donna hayward is talking with her mom about fi- realizing that her and james are in love uh, Be- Benjamin Horn's affair with Catherine from the Packard Sawmill, like, and the, the sheriff's affair with uh, um, Josie, like, all of the mundanity keeps ticking. And it's not that those things are separate from these massive, jarring, cataclysmic events. They're not, they're not separated from the divine and the mysterious and the horrifying. They're constituent elements of it. 
Yeah, precisely. Precisely. This is this idea that there is a kind of like split um, in the show is is completely kind of incorrect in my opinion. The show is entirely integrated, um, and this is this is why this the kind of theme of the episode really is is all of this mundane duplicity because we are phenomenally self deceiving. Right, mostly because yes. if we want to approach this in a kind of psychoanalytic way, we're incapable of actually admitting our desire. Right, the mm-hmm. whole the whole point of psychoanalytic therapy is not to get you to stop desiring; it's to get you to be okay with admitting the things that you want. Right? Um, yeah. Or, or the thing that you want is never really the thing that you want; it represents something else. Right? It's not necessarily it's not necessarily about the affair; it's about what does the affair signify? Right. Uh, absolutely desi- yeah. desire is always desire uh the desire of the other what what is it that you that you have learned to want and i think one of the really great things about this episode is the amount of time it takes to go no everybody does this every it's the ba- one of the basic mm-hmm. conditions of being human is being forced to reckon with you the inability of ourselves to reconcile with the things that we actually want right that's that's the whole point of these affairs right you you are in a certain situation. The other represents not just your attraction to the other, but they represent a kind of escape from your current state. Uh, Ed, I think, is probably the the kind of paradigmatic example of this, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ed, Ed is a great example of this. We've also got Donna and James, which are in a lot of ways um, kind of mirroring what's going on with Ed as a character. And at least, at least Donna is able to admit it, right? It's a, it's a very difficult thing to admit because it's riven with a lot of guilt and, and, and not at all surprisingly a lot of grief. And I actually find, I find that scene between Donna and her mother kind of like actually really quite moving. You know, this idea of going mm-hmm. of, but, but moving because it's about being able to admit, to admit what, what it is that you want. I think is is. Extraordinarily powerful, especially in an episode where literally almost every other character has been incapable of doing that. Right? Yeah, yeah. This episode is defined by all of these characters having desires that to themselves are occulted. You know, you know, we 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 talk about the the the, the Black Lodge, right? And and all of the characters therein as being like the mystery of Twin Peaks, the source of darkness, the evil presence in the woods. But like all of their desires are straightforward. They're non-human. You know, they don't have the hang-ups that we have. You know, uh, the real darkness that, that's, that's that's cutting rifts through Twin Peaks, that, that's driving all of this, is the fact that no one can come to terms with what they want in this life. Yeah, yeah precisely. And, and every every single one of them is is just just eaten alive by that. Yeah, absolutely. So I know, I know you had something interesting to say about the discourse on drugs that starts to appear starting in uh, traces to nowhere. Well isn't isn't that kind of just another example, right? What's like I think the choice of the drug in question is really interesting, right? Mhm. Uh it turns out Laura 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 did kind of everything in the town, right? Organized meals and wheels, was dating the football uh captain, was a tutor, was helping people with their English language. And I'm like was dating the bad boy on da- the bike. Was dating the hot <laughs> the hot bad boy on the bike. And I'm like Cocaine makes a lot of sense here, right? Like the, you do need a lot of energy to complete those tasks, yeah. <laughs> but, but also, and this is maybe like, in a, in a way, this might sound a bit weird, but in a way, uh, cocaine strikes me as perhaps the 
the capitalist drug par excellence, right? This idea, oh, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. why? What's it? It's a stimulant. It's supposed to make you more productive. Cocaine is associated with wealth on both sides of the law, right? The people who are extremely rich and you know often work on Wall Street or in the Houses of Parliament love to do lines of coke. It's uh, uh, you know think about Noriega uh, or yeah. uh, the other kind of infamous drug dealers that kind of get glam. Like it's about wealth. It's about power. It's about productivity. It is. It is kind of like powdered capitalism. Right, <laughs> I, I think I, you know, it's very it's very noticeable that she's not doing psychedelics, she's not doing weed, right? She's not doing like super heavy opiates, which are designed to kind of numb you from existence. It's it's about this kind of like hyper intensification, and I think that's super interesting. I I completely agree, and I think like the conversation about desire and desire being occulted becomes metatextual in this episode a lot because now we start to introduce the elements of cocaine into the story of the drug use, the drug bust plots that are going on, the stuff with Jacques Renault that's going to start becoming more prominent. And and what what the contrast is for me is that like all of the main players, every adult in this story is their entire life is defined by relationship to an upper. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like absolutely. And, and I'm not talking about cocaine. It's coffee. Yeah. It's caffeine, right? Like, like Cooper, Cooper, everybody, like they love coffee. They're always drinking coffee. They're always talking about coffee. Coffee is always in focus. And, and there, there's kind of this metatextual balance here where it's like, okay, like it's, and this is something we touched on in the last episode, but it's perfectly acceptable to define your life in relationship to a drug. As long as that drug falls into these acceptable social frameworks and these acceptable capitalistic frameworks, if your relationship to a drug falls outside of that, that's when problems start to emerge, right? And and this is, in a way, this show's bringing that to the foreground, right? Because it's hard not to notice that, like, yeah, sure, everyone's love with coffee is cute, but why is it cute? Why do we find that cute? And why do we find the presence of cocaine in picturesque Pacific Northwest Americana to be to be something vulgar, to be something alien? No, I completely agree. I completely agree, right? It's... Like none of this is a surprise. I think the 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 discourse around drugs often gets caught up in this kind of like moral panicking. Oh, you know, what are mm-hmm. the young people doing when they're out of sight? But it's like everybody does it. Everybody's doing it. Everybody is on some sort of upper that's a stimulant, something that's designed to make them keep going, make them keep maintaining the kind of duplicitous doubling of their own selves that's being enacted on the screen. We're, we're all doing drugs and we're all doing drugs nearly every day. Energy drinks, the caffeine in those, the caffeine in coffee, right? Like uh, it's just everywhere. It's ubiquitous to society, right? Our relationship to it, though, is like all desire, just interwoven and enmeshed and sunken into the black lodge of our own psyche. Yes, absolutely. And that that I think for me, like the, the, uh, there's a lot of horror in, in Twin Peaks, right? Like, there's a lot of horror and terror going on in this series, and it drives a lot of it. Like, David Lynch is just a master of fear. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in this show, like, this episode starts to kind of, like, tease out some of the deeper, more frightening things in Twin Peaks, and that's... This episode kind of introduces a question, and that's, you know, like, what's, what's more horrifying? That terrible things will happen to you? Or that even after life's worst even after like the most horrifying and painful and shattering things happen, that life will continue. 
people, people will recover, people will continue moving, the cycles of society will continue to go on. And, and it's, it, it adds a sense of, there's always this touch of the cosmic in what David Lynch is doing. And this introduces a very mundane kind of imbrication of cosmic horror into Twin Peaks. Completely. What What's the worst thing is that, like in many in many ways, right? In many ways, the worst the worst thing is not that, uh, it's not that that people die or that you know people kind of disappear. It's that you have to continue in the wake of that, right? That's the that's the worst thing. That's the that's in many ways that's often the kind of unlivable thing about dealing with grief or dealing with loss or dealing with kind of traumas and pain, right? It's the idea that mm-hmm. when when something is gone, you're you're still there, um. Yeah. And that's that's the hardest thing, right? And and it's hard precisely for the reason that it raises the kind of it raises the stakes of the the question to to the kind of existential to the cosmic as you put it, right? Um you know, we know that we know bodies are contingent and fragile things. We know that ourselves are um in, immensely fleeting, but it there is a sort of like uh continuing in the wake of an absence, right? There's the the great American uh, Australian Gothic uh, picnic at Hanging Rock, right, Where, which is just mm-hmm. has an unexplained disappearance in it. What, like, this is the big question: What do you do when someone's just gone? And it's like, well, as Twin yeah. Peaks shows, you do the same thing that you did when they were there, right? Because you have to, because there isn't really anything else to be done. And and that is the the, the profundity of that is terrifying. So uh, let's let's wrap up today's mini episode. Do you, do you have any closing thoughts or questions as we go out? Um, what do you think about the Overlook? Ho- I mean, the Great Northern, the the Overlook Hotel of this of this uh, <laughs> television show. Um, this was one of my favorite things about this episode: the the getting to spend more time in this phenomenally um, uh, weird space. Cooper is constantly talking about the need to find somewhere cheap, somewhere cheap and affordable, somewhere with a, with a bed and a television. Um, and it it's uh, it's so strange that there is, in a place that doesn't seem to have a huge tourist trade, there is also this enormous hotel. There's something so kind of like incongruous <laughs> about this. Uh, what about you? I mean, like, like I've always found the Great Northern, besides being in a certain respect, aesthetic goals for interior design, uh, to, to be a truly menacing place. You know, it's 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 the home of the Horn family, and they are like some of the most creepy and terrifying and jarring characters. Um, especially Benjamin in, in particular and his brother. Um, oh yeah, awful. But it's Just also awful like people. It, yeah, the, the Great Northern, it's it's where we watch, you know, Leland Palmer start breaking down. Like, like so much, like, really gutting emotional stuff happens at the Great Northern. And I think it, it, it's also the site of, like, like, a land grab. But Benjamin Horn is trying to buy up Twin Peaks and turn it into an investment property, right? He, he, is, he is the Grim Reaper for this small town, right? He is the reason why... No homes are going to be affordable in Twin Peaks by the time we get to our generation, right? It's the Benjamin Horns of the past that drove us to the damnation we face today. And, and, and like, what is the Great Northern if not a lodge? It's literally a lodge. 
you know, and we need to look at it with kind of the same, the same kind of energy, the same frameworks, the same ontologies and hermeneutics that we used to discuss the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. I think that's, I think that's a great, that's a great place to wrap it for uh, the first proper episode of the show. Um, and then uh, join us next time as we move on to the the art of Zen, or of course, how to catch a killer. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.